0: The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. This book that I have, um, it's been on my shelf for many years. I've never sat down to read it. Um, But the book is titled, Lend Me Your Ears, Great Speeches in History by William Sapphire. This was a book that was uh, given to my brother in 1997 when he was 27 years old. Uh, It was given to him uh, by my mother, and uh, the note is still in here that she wrote to him. She said, Joe, happy birthday. I sincerely wish you all the best this world has to offer with much love, respect, and admiration, Teresa. This was three years um, before my brother took his own life in 2000. Uh, And so I inherited the book, and uh, I remember passing through its pages years ago when I first came into its possession. It has several different sections in here on uh, different kinds of speeches in the history of the world. So it begins with, memorials and patriotic speeches and it goes to tributes and eulogies and then debates and argumentation has trials so you have martin luther's dita verms is listed there Um, you have gallows and farewell speeches and then towards the end is a section for sermons and listed right underneath the first sermon which is the buddha urges a turning away from craving in his fire sermon The second sermon listed is Jesus of Nazareth delivers the Sermon on the Mount. That struck me when I first came into possession of this book, and I was reminded of it as I was preparing this sermon, and the thought that I had then and the thought that I have now is that everyone who's at least heard of Jesus has likely heard something from the Sermon on the Mount, and everybody has an opinion about it. Right? This is a passage of Scripture, this is a famous passage of Jesus' teaching that you can't help but have some kind of opinion about it. Some think of it merely as one of the greatest speeches in history. Some come to this sermon and are inspired to live a better life. Others come to it and agree that it's a good foundation for a fair and ethical secular society. Others maybe steal a sentence or two from it and then twist it and use it for their social and political agenda. Many Christians use theological gymnastics to find ways to excuse themselves from the application of what Jesus said here. Just about everybody has an opinion on the Sermon on the Mount, and most of our opinions are wrong. I was a bit cheeky, entitling this sermon. I hope some of you picked up on that. Hashtag blessed is a common tag on social media that people use to put on their pictures as a way of saying, life is good. I did a quick search on Instagram this week and hashtag blessed came back with over 120 million results. I scrolled through the first eh, maybe 100 pictures, almost all of them had to do with either personal fitness, kids, or someone sitting in a coffee shop, (laughs) blessed. It's funny, but here's the reality. We have a very skewed picture of what it means to be blessed. And I don't just say we in general, like we in culture. I say we, including those who are in this room. We often have a very skewed picture of what it means to be blessed. Our default default posture towards this idea of blessing is very selfish, very greedy, very individualistic, very material. And so as we prepare to come to the second half of the Beatitudes, which is really just the first, I don't know, 10, 15% or so of the Sermon on the Mount we really have two big challenges that we have to overcome. One is that much of what we've heard or been told about the Sermon on the Mount is probably wrong. So before we can really understand the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we need to have a macro understanding of what does this sermon mean and how do we apply it to our lives? But the second challenge is that even with an interpretive lens in place for the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, we still have this trouble of knowing what to do with this repeated pronouncement that Jesus makes. Blessed are." And so last week, Charlie touched on the first half of the beatitudes, and he showed us this posture posture with which we are to receive Christ's kingdom and his kingdom teaching. And so following in Charlie's footsteps, what I want to do this morning is kind of do another general overview of the Beatitudes, Uh, and what I want to give us is three common ways that we can mistreat the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, and I hope that this will address common misconceptions and maybe ways that we've been tempted to uh, approach Jesus's teachings here, and then after we deal with those three misconceptions, we'll end with a positive takeaway, how we as Christians can begin to understand and apply the Beatitudes in our own life. And so we're going to be doing a general overview, and I just, uh, I thought that, um, a general overview and applying Jesus' teaching kind of a macro way would be a better use of our time than an unsatisfying like three-minute list through each of the Beatitudes listed here. And so that's gonna be how we go about this. And so let's turn our attention now to the reading from Matthew 5, and then we'll jump in. I'll be reading Matthew 5, verses one through 12. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father, this is a difficult teaching, but it is a beautiful one. And so... We ask that your spirit would illuminate our hearts and our minds to sit under your word and that we would come this morning poor in spirit, with humility and contrition, sitting under your word, receiving conviction, ready to possibly change our ways to better conform to life in your kingdom. So we ask that you would speak to us now, we pray in Christ's name, amen. So first, three misunderstandings or ways that we can mistreat the Sermon on the the Mount and the Beatitudes. And the first is treating the Beatitudes as if it's talking about everyone else but us. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. You know, I've been trying to tell my brother-in-law that for years. He's always, you know, he shows up Christmas every year and he just does the same shtick every year. He's always so rude. You know what? That guy needs Jesus. I'm going to send him this sermon tomorrow after the sermon's done. Maybe he'll finally listen. Please don't do that. But you see, we all do this. And if you're saying to yourself, I don't do that, maybe other people do, but not me. Ah, See? There's a sly little Pharisaical monster inside of each of us, always trying to find clever ways to rationalize or excuse ourselves from conviction, from being a part of the problem. We want to read the Bible through the lens of looking for blessings for us and conviction for everybody else. We want to point the fingers at others rather than admitting that maybe we're a part of the problem by looking inward. At ourselves. You see this play out in society and news all the time. I mean, what is news today except pointing fingers? I finished recently reading an essay that Wendell Berry wrote in 1985. The title of the essay was, What Are People For? And he begins the essay by dealing with the problem at his time, and I suppose you could still see this happening today, where corporations and big businesses were telling people that the problem with the economy was that there were too many farmers. There are too many farmers and what we really need is for people to move out of the country and into the city to contribute to a a growing and healthy economy. And Barry says in response, he says, you know, it's apparently easy to say that there are too many farmers if one is not a farmer. And so we see this happen all the time. National and global scales, this instinct to point finger at others, but we do this when it comes to Jesus's teaching too. Trying to find ways to maybe narrow the scope of Jesus's teaching to justify ourselves but condemn others. You might know the name Charles Finney. He was a rather interesting guy, a pastor and a leader during the second great awakening. There's one story about him where he was guest preaching at a wealthy New England church. And he decided to preach on the text in Luke where Jesus says, any of you who does not give up everything that, the, everything that they have cannot be my disciple. You can see maybe uh, what trouble that could have gotten him into. Well, Finney applied a plain reading of the text. Disciples of Jesus must submit all that they have to be used by Jesus for his purposes. And the pastor of the church, Lyman Beecher, He got up after the sermon and he was embarrassed by what Finney had said. And he apologized because he was so embarrassed. And so he said, God wouldn't actually ask you to give up anything. He just wants to know that you might be willing to. To which Finney jumped out of his seat and he declared, The moment you become a disciple of Jesus, you lose ownership of all your possessions. And so too for us. The moment we become a disciple of Jesus, he becomes Lord over everything that we are and everything that we have. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus is telling us what our lives must look like, what they must conform to, who we must become if we are going to follow him. However, however, it would be a mistake to then turn the Beatitudes into a list of rules and requirements that we must achieve to get into the kingdom. This would be the second great way that we misunderstand the Beatitudes, and it's likely the most common error we make in approaching the text. And, conveniently, everybody does it. (laughs) There's very religious ways to do this, and there's very secular ways to do this. And so I want to briefly address Both ways that we can turn the Beatitudes into a list of rules and requirements. The religious way to do this is to approach the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, purely through our theological categories of law and grace. This is a very Martin Luther thing to do. Someone who approaches the Sermon on the Mount in this way will say, the purpose of these high demands that Jesus is making is to show us that we are incapable of keeping the law, to show us how great of sinners we are and how desperate we are of his grace. He's not actually asking us to live like this. There's at least two mistakes with this view. The first mistake is to equate the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes with the Mosaic Law. Certainly, elements of the Mosaic Law are in the Sermon on the Mount, but Jesus' teaching far exceeds the Mosaic Law in both its scope and its depth. Jesus says later in this sermon that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he goes on to say that our righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. And then he shows how, for example, both anger, And lust are not merely sins of outward behavior, but sins of the heart. And so the scope of the Sermon on the Mount is far wider, and its depth is far richer than the Mosaic Law. But the second mistake with this view is this, and it's more subtle. It's an attitude that thinks of God as someone who is out to get us. We get this idea in our heads that the whole purpose he would have to deliver this wonderful sermon is to make us feel miserable about ourselves. This is a view that many of us struggle with, I think. Deep down in our hearts, we think that God is out to withhold good things from us and that this Sermon on the Mount is here just to condemn us. And yet the pronouncement of the Beatitudes, is this, blessed are, blessed are. The word for blessed in the Greek is the word makarios. A makarios, or a makarism, is a declarative and congratulatory statement about God's beneficial action to a person. And this is why an appropriate translation would be happy are, The person who truly knows God's blessings are to be congratulated and celebrated for receiving such favor from God. And so to simply turn the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount into a demonstration of the burden of the law and the need for grace is really ultimately unsatisfying. Such a view also greatly diminishes the work and the life of our Savior I've been greatly helped in my own understanding of the Sermon on the Mount, as I'm sure many of you have, by the work of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Lloyd-Jones is a 20th century pastor and teacher. who He wrote an amazing study on the Sermon on the Mount, and so I want you to listen to something he says in his introduction on how we can mistreat Jesus' teaching. Here's what he said. Is it not true to say, many of us, that in actual practice... Our view of the doctrine of grace is such that we scarcely ever take the plain teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ seriously. We have so emphasized the teaching that all is of grace and that we ought not to try to imitate his example in order to make ourselves Christians, that we are virtually in the position of ignoring his teaching altogether and of saying that it has nothing to do with us because we are under grace. Friends, if we neatly fit Jesus's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount into our law grace categories, we would undermine what is being said here, the force of what is being said here, and all that Jesus came to accomplish and to do for us. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. But there's also a very secular way to turn Jesus' teaching here into a simple list of rules and requirements. Many today come to the Sermon on the Mount and treat it as nothing more than a nice foundational blueprint for an ethical and fair society. But to approach the Sermon on the Mount in that way or really any moral creed, is to doom ourselves to failure. I've quoted the work of Yuval Harari before. Harari is a secular humanist, historian, and author. And on paper, he and I could not disagree more about the big questions in life. And yet, there are few authors that I love to read more than him. His work is refreshingly clear and honest. I read an essay he wrote recently on modern secularism. In the first half of the essay, he addresses why it's a mistake to think that secularists are immoral. In fact, he argues why secularists are extremely moral. And I know many of you in the room hear me say that and you're preparing your apologetic ninja response, right? On that statement. But he's right. He's right. Driven by their pursuit for truth and responsibility and a desire to minimize suffering, the secular world is actually extremely moral. But, and this is why I love Harari so so much, he says secularists must also be willing to admit they have a shadow. The problem, he says, is is not that secularism is immoral, It's that the ethical bar is set too high. The standards are just too high to follow. And he says people, societies, they simply cannot handle complex problems like war or economic crisis on an open-ended search for truth and compassion. And so this is why he says, secularism repeatedly mutates into some kind of dogmatic creed, such as Marxism, Stalinism, or Maoism. Why? Why? because the pressures of crisis and complex problems will harden you and force you into some kind of dogmatic ideology that's going to be exclusive to the world around you. And what is true socially is true individually. You see, if you approach the Beatitudes simply as a list of neat rules for an ethical life, you're going to crush yourself. And hardened by your own failure, you'll likely find your own views of relationships and society and hope for the future narrowing into some manageable, dogmatic ideology. And it's not going to work. You'll turn life into a neat list of rules and check boxes that you can easily manage, but that can be used to condemn and exclude others around you. The German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived under the dogmatic ideology of the Nazi party, and he knew firsthand what this looked like. So this is why in his own work on the Sermon on the Mount, he emphasized that Jesus's teaching here is not for all people in general. It is for those who are under the power of Jesus's call. Jesus began his ministry. He gave his kingdom call of repentance and immediately his disciples left everything and followed him. They were under the power of his call. That call made them poor in spirit, meek and hungry. And so they are blessed, not because they gave up everything, but because they are under the power of the call and they believe the promise of his kingdom. Friends, are you under the power of Jesus' call? Are you Under the power of Jesus' call, is Jesus Lord over your life? Not just your possessions, but who you are, your character, your emotions, your relationships, your responses to crisis or stress. Are you under the power of his call? If not, friends, these blessings are not for you. So we pray this morning, we pray now when we pray as we come to the table, we pray that if you do not know Christ, that you would know him today and come under the power of his call and come into his kingdom so that it can be said about you, blessed are, blessed are. So we can come to the text looking to convict everyone but ourselves. We can come to the text turning into a list of rules and requirements to get into Jesus' kingdom. But another way that we can mistreat this text is to treat it without a healthy posture of awe. And I think perhaps what we need this morning to remember the power of his call is to have a fresh sense of awe, amazement, or power. Jesus says here that the blessings of his kingdom are for the poor in spirit, the lowly, the meek, the merciful, the peacekeeper. And it ought to be a surprise to us that those whom Jesus pronounces to be blessed are those who are so lowly in stature. But is this not the upside down nature of his kingdom? That he welcomes those who are so low in spirit? That blessings are not earned by strength or by power, but by meekness and humility. This ought to surprise us, but I think what should truly amaze us is not that the kingdom is enjoyed by the poor in spirit and the forgotten, but that it can also belong to us the comfortable, the rich. The proud. Those of us who are filled with our own ambitions, our dreams, our desires, our plans, our retirement funds, our homes, our cars, our vacations. I hope you remember the story of the chief tax collector named Zacchaeus from Luke 19. He was a rich man. And it wasn't just that Zacchaeus was rich because he'd inherited a lump sum of money from his family. He was rich because he was greedy, proud, and he had robbed illicit profits from his own people. But when Jesus invited himself to his house, Zacchaeus turned from his corrupted ways and he promised to sell half of his goods to the poor and to restore what was taken fourfold. Jesus then joyfully announced, today salvation has come to this house for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Can you believe it? There's room for you and for me in Jesus' kingdom. There's room for the comfortable, the proud, the mighty, the rich. As Jen Pollock-Michael says in her book, it's a surprise that the kingdom has generous room for the least. It is a paradox that it welcomes those with so much. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And the call he gave to come into this kingdom is for you and for me this morning. And if we are under the power of that call, it will make us poor in spirit, meek, and humble. And we will take up residence in the kingdom of God. And the Beatitudes, the life laid out in the Beatitudes can become a reality for each and every one of us here today. Because you see, the power of Jesus' call into his kingdom is a call of a kingdom which has broken into this world. When Jesus gave his call and declared that the kingdom was at hand, repent and believe the gospel, he ripped a hole in the very fabric of space and time. And the future came into the present. He brought the future into the now and he established a kingdom here on this earth that will be forevermore for all of eternity. And this is why the Apostle Paul could say as we read this morning that if we are under the power of Christ's call, if we have put our faith in Christ, then we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son. This is why he can say that Christ not only died to redeem us from lawlessness by his grace, but also to purify us and to make us zealous for good works. And when we embrace that truth, we'll see that the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, is describing what life in the kingdom looks like. This is positively stated, what the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount are for Not only to show us what faithful Christian living looks like, but also what is possible for each and every one of us. If we are under the power of his call, then we are residents of a new kingdom. And this can only happen by the power of God's spirit at work in us, taking us out of one reality and ushering us into the next. And so far more than a checklist, far more than a list of I told you so's, the Beatitudes are our template for life with Christ and being like Christ. Hear Lloyd-Jones on this again. He said, any one of us and every one of us, whatever we may be by birth and nature is meant as a Christian to be like this. And not only are we meant to be like this, we can be like this. This is the central glory of the gospel. It can take the proudest man by nature and make him a man who is poor in spirit. Here in the Sermon on the Mount are the characteristics and dispositions that are the result of grace, the product of the Holy Spirit, and therefore possible for all. So this, friends, It's where the Christian life is found. In this spirit power desire to be like Christ and to live with Christ in his new kingdom. And why will we receive mercy? Because Jesus won it for us. Why will we see God? Because by the power of the spirit, Jesus brings us to him. Why can we be peacemakers? Because Jesus made peace with us. You see, the life of the Beatitudes is possible because Jesus made it possible. And we live with him and through him now in his kingdom. Nobody said it was going to be easy. Circumstances will at times crush us. People will mock us and revile us. Jesus even said it will be so. But this is the life, friends, to which we are called is the kingdom life. I was reminded recently of my favorite story from the civil rights movement. I hope you're familiar with the Montgomery County, or not Montgomery County, the Montgomery Bus Boycott. It began in 1955 when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on the bus. For the next year, African-American citizens joined by their white brothers and sisters refused to ride public transportation, which was a huge hit on the local economy. And they were, of course, uh, boycotting for equal treatment under the city's law. It was their way of being peacemakers without resorting to the violence of the world. And you may know the names Rosa Parks and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., two of the well known heroes of the movement. But I wonder how many of you know the name of Mother Pollard, a 72 year old woman who lived in the city of Montgomery. One night in December, Dr. King was ready to throw in the towel on all that he was trying to achieve in the boycott. He was tired, and he felt that all of his negotiations and the efforts of his people were accomplishing nothing. But then he was approached by Mother Pollard. Countless people had tried to offer her rides to work, and she refused Many had tried to get her to quit the boycott for the sake of her health, for what, surely what 72-year-old woman can in a healthy way march through the city town during the heat of summer, during the cold of winter? Do you know what she would say to them when people told her to quit? She said this, my feet is tired, but my soul is rested. I love that. My feet is tired, but my soul is rested. And Dr. King would later say it was the example and encouragement of Mother Pollard, which gave him the energy to get back into the fight until it was won. Mother Pollard understood the Beatitudes. She understood that the kingdom life may not be easy, but it would be good. She understood that she could live life like the future today. She knew where her hope and strength came from. It came from the Lord, and that was enough for her. And so may we, with spirit-powered, soul-filled, hope for the future, live faithfully today, because this is the call of our Savior. That is the blessed life in Christ's new kingdom. Let's pray together. Lord, you have spoken. May we listen. Call to us, and we will answer. Command us, impose on us what you will, and we will follow. None but the Lord, none but Christ, no other Lord nor lover of our soul. We are yours, your own. And so we ask that you would do with your own, that you would demand of your own, whatever you please. What will you have us be, Lord? What will you have us do? That is what we will do and what we will be. No longer what we will, but your will be done. For your reign over us is in your kingdom, now and forever. Amen.